Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to Winter Park and all of our surrounding communities and cities. It is Friday. That's what we say. It is Friday. So once again, you are joining us at our seat, our table, the Leadership Lounge. Thank you so much once again to WPRK 91.5 for having us. We are so excited to be here. We have a fantastic show. This is our fifth show. And as we know, it is Black History Month. And we are excited for each and every one of our guests to be here. As for those of you who have been listening to us, we are hoping to always have new people listening. The platform for us is history, community, grassroots organizations, um, highlighting our artists, our local artisans, as well as our business community, and then a call to action. So we have a jam-packed hour for you. We have with us Beverly Steele, who is a community historian in the community of Royal in Wildwood, Florida. Beverly is going to be joining us today and giving us some Black history from that community, the African-American community of the community of Royal in Wildwood. Um, Sumter County is where they're located. So once again, we love to be able to inform you. A lot of times people come to the Central Florida area and not realize how much relative African-American history is continually here with us. We also have with us Dr. Carl Maltzby. Dr. Carl Maltzby is a director of music and he is here to go through James Weldon Johnson's famous Lift Every Voice and Sing. As most of you may know, one of our representatives, uh, Clyburn, he is in favor of turning that into our national anthem. And I too am in favor with it. So I figured what a good what what would be good is that we bring someone in who is familiar with and kind of break it down to us as far as what those lyrics mean. This is an exciting time in the city of Winter Park. This weekend, Valentine's Day weekend, Black History weekend, starting off Friday, we are having the opening for Jane Turner, the evolution of an artist, will be held at the Hannibal Square Heritage Center from 7 to 9 p.m. This is a free opening reception and we encourage the community to come out and see Jane's work. Also, Saturday and Sunday, the 13th and the 14th, we are having the second annual 1619 Festival in historic Hannibal Square. You're gonna have music, you're gonna have performances, you're gonna have community conversations, a movie marathon. You can go to the 1619 Fest on Eventbrite or even on Facebook, 1619 Fest Orlando Hannibal Square Eventbrite and find out more about what is happening at that event. So once again, my name is Barbara Chandler and we are here every Friday from nine to 10. This is our seat and it's our table, the Leadership Lounge. This is where we are highlighting the community from the inside out. People who are working every community angle in which to continue to bring relative and uh, informative information to the residents. So right now we have with us Dr. Carl Moltsby, 
who is a director of music as well as an organist. Mr. Mosby, good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. We are so excited to have you here with us this week uh, in part of our Black History celebration and promotion of all things Black, we wanted to discuss the Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. And we figured we would speak to you and kind of tell us exactly uh, the history behind the writing of the song. Okay, first of all, let's clarify that it is Lift Every Voice and Sing. Correct. And that was the title that was given to it by James Weldon Johnson and his brother, John Rosamond Johnson. For the February 12, 1900 celebration of the birthday of Abraham Lincoln, James Weldon Johnson was asked to speak to a group of students at a presentation. Uh, so he started writing notes that it wasn't gonna happen as a speech. And he started jotting down a few lines. And he said, I got my first line, lift every, that's E-V apostrophe R-Y, every voice and sing. Not a start in a line, but I worked along grinding out the next five. And we're near the end of the first stanza. There came to me the lines, sing a song full of the faith that the dark passage taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. And at that point, he enlisted his uh, brother, Jay Rosamond, to join him and writing the song, Lift Every Voice and Sing. So did it start off as a poem? This is part of the confusion uh, of the lore that has surrounded it. He was asked to write an address to an, for, the, for this assembly. And he decided that wasn't going to work. And he wrote the first stanza, the lines of the first stanza only. That's all that he wrote when he enlisted his brother because they already had a publishing deal in New York with E.B. Marks Publishing Company. Then the two of them, music and lyrics together, crafted stanzas two and stanzas three. And that is what was the initial performance of Lift Every Voice and Sing. And February 12, 1909, almost nine years to the date from the first performance by 500 school kids in Jacksonville, Florida, Lift Every Voice and Sing was sung. And then uh, nine years later, the NAACP was founded. In 1919, James Walden Johnson became the executive field secretary for the NAACP. And in 1920, the organization officially adopted it and gave its the moniker, the Negro National Anthem. And that moniker held up until around 1968, 1970 to be precisely, when Blacks redefined themselves from Negro to being Black Americans and subsequently African Americans. To aid in that nomenclature shift was a recording on MGM Records 
by Kim Weston. Kim Weston had, a, had, a, had come to the public eye as a singer on Motown records, uh, most famously being one of the uh, duet ladies with Marvin Gaye. She had subsequently left Motown and went to MGM Records, which was located out in Los Angeles. She was asked to sing the Star Spangled Banner at a Lakers game, uh, which she did, and the record company wanted her to make a recording of it. But Kim Weston decided if she was going to record anything, she was going to record Lift Every Voice and Sing. <laughs> and in so doing, Jesse Jackson got on the bandwagon with her uh, and called up a few radio stations and got them to play as he subsequently uh, uh, announced Kim Weston's appearance in 1972 at the Watts Stacks Festival. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Sister Kim Weston, the National Black Anthem. And from Jesse Jackson's uh, renaming of Lift Every Voice and Sing, it had its second life as the Black National Anthem. What had happened during the 50s and the 60s of the height of the civil rights movement, even though Lift Every Voice and Sing was the song that was sung at the beginning of all the meetings of the NAACP, the song kind of fell out of favor with younger Black Americans during the 60s. And they thought Lift Every Voice and Sing was old timey. So they gravitated towards We Shall Overcome. Okay. We Shall Overcome was actually a paraphrase of an older gospel song, which was made famous by Mahalia Jackson called I'll Be Like Him. One of the major things that helped to introduce Lift Every Voice and Sing to a younger group of, of people, Black people in particular, Black students, were Roland Carter wrote a choral arrangement for his Hampton University Choir mm -hmm. of Lift Every Voice and Sing that was patterned after the Wilowski Battle Hymn of the Republic because all too often that was the song that HBCU choirs often close, at least Hampton, closed its concerts with. First of all, thank you for that amazing history around this song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, and all these other uh, songs that came after. At this particular point, and I think I heard you say that Lift Every Voice and Sing started to not be as received from the younger audience. Where are we now? Well, I'll lift every voice and sing is very much on their hearts and minds because of the historical black colleges and universities adopted the Roland Carter arrangement as like their go-to anthem. In fact, the HBCUs put out a, a virtual choir with members from the various HBCUs singing that. The Mormon Tabernacle Chorus had, had made a re recording of it. Popular artists recorded it. One of the recordings that uh, uh, I did was at the Fuji Jazz Festival with Diane Rees and my group Rejoice Ensemble. And which is, I, I need to clarify something that you said earlier at the beginning. Okay. Uh, uh, Representative James Clyburn has introduced legislation to make 
lift every voice and sing the national hymn. The national hymn. Uh, okay. okay. Hymn. As, and I'm pretty sure he chose that word as opposed to anthem so as to not get into the political conflict between okay. the national anthem and a national hymn. We do not currently have a national hymn. Okay, so it's a national hymn. Where can we find you? How can we look you up? Are you on social media? Uh, do you have a website? How can people find you if they have more questions? The best way to find me is if you go to the St. Richard's Episcopal Church, Winter Park, Florida website, you will find uh, ways to connect with me there. Organist at strichards.org. And I'm at St. Richard's most Sunday mornings, although these days, because of social distancing requirements, you have to make a reservation to get in. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Dr. Moltsby, I cannot thank you enough. I think this was very informative information, all that you have shared with us. And definitely, we are looking forward to learning more from you around the Negro National Anthem, or, or him, as, um, as you stated. Once again, we want to thank you so much for joining oh, the us. Black the Black National Hymn. The Black National Hymn. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm definitely for it. Thank you again so much for joining us with Our Seat, Our Table, Leadership Lounge. Today, we have, of course, LaVonda Wilder from the Eatonville Chamber of Commerce, and she will be chatting it up with our local publisher of Onyx Magazine, Rich Black. LaVonda? Hi, Barbara. Thanks for having us on. And Mr. Rich Black, how are you today? Uh, good morning. We're very well. Thanks for having us. Awesome. And you are the publisher of Onyx Magazine. Last night while I was refreshing my memory about some of the accolades that you have accomplished, I found that you were the first director of diversity of the Rosen Hotels, the president of Florida's largest independent hotel, and the advisor to billionaire Harris Rosen. Now, how do you come from being a director of diversity of Rosen onto being the publisher and editor in chief of a magazine, Onyx Magazine. Well, uh, thank you for that question. I've worked with Harris Rosen on a community um, with Bethune Cookman University, and it was to build the statue of Mary McLeod. Um, I, I have always been very Afrocentric in my thinking. And I read some stories about Mary McLeod Bethune, and I said to myself, why has this woman not been honored in the state of Florida where she's done all of this phenomenal work? So there was a committee that was formed there at uh, Bethune-Cookman, an alumni base. And we took the project to Harris Rose and shared the project with them. Um, when we talked to him about it, he listened. Um, he was very polite. But as Lee Bryan and I sat in his office, we noticed that there was a lot of Jackie Robinson memorabilia in his office. And I, in the middle of the presentation, I don't know what it was, but I said to him, I said, um, Mr. Rosen, are you a Jackie Robinson fan? He said, yes, what do you know about Jackie Robinson? And I shared with him that back in the day, Mary McLeod Bethune, she worked with um, Jackie Robinson and his wife um, to get them to Daytona Beach after they were put off the bus um, due to um, discrimination there in Jacksonville. 
And as a result, as the story goes, um, Jackie, Robinson, Jackie Robinson integrated the uh, game of baseball in Daytona Beach. And after we shared that, he says, listen, anyone who helped my friend Jackie Robinson, I would do whatever I need to do. Uh, what do you need for this project? About 300000 or what do you need? And I said, well, no. Um, I said, Mr. Rosen, I really think that it needs to be a community-driven initiative. And why don't we get corporations, um, entities that she belonged to, and, and just um, organizations throughout the state to support it, that when the statute goes up, there will be some connection to it. And he agreed. Uh, we worked with him. We put on a, um, a dinner for about 2000 um, we raised about 350000 that that wow. night. We about um, 800000 800, And I think we raised almost a million and gave about 200000 back to the college. Awesome. So that's this... my introduction to Harris Rosen. And as I work with Harris Rosen, we also work with Lillian and Lester Sears. Um, Lillian, Lillian Sears was my instructor in middle school. And we brought them in to sort of kind of write the stories and push the Mary McLeod Platoon project. So um, Lillian Sears was watching me. Harris Rosen was watching me. So once the project was over, Harris Rosen signed me on as his diversity director for my ability to connect the people. And then eventually, um, Lillian Lester asked me to buy the magazine. So about seven years ago, Seven or eight years ago, I purchased the magazine, and it is now the number one black publication in Florida. Wow. That is awesome. And I did notice that this was not your first time or your only time taking the initiative when you thought something was not being done as it should be done, because I see that you were also given credit for securing a $100,000 budget for the Orange County Regional Historical Museum when they omitted an African-American exhibit. Um, yes. <laughs> you have done your research. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess you forgot about that one, didn't you? I, I, I forgot about that, but that, that happened. Um, I spoke to the, um, I guess she was the manager of the Orange County History Center. And when I went into the Orange County History Center, I saw that, um, and we were working on the Mary McLeod Bethune Project, and there was only two sentences about Mary McLeod Bethune. And the African-American exhibit was pretty shabby. There weren't, I, I don't know, there, there weren't really a lot of work that they put into the um, exhibit. And I walked out of the building and I stood at the door and I turned around and walked back into the building. And I said, you know what? Today, I'm going to take a stand. This is how we're written out of history. So I met with the um, powers that be at the Orange County History Center. Um, they sort of kind of gave me the runaround at the time. And I said, no, this is unacceptable. When young kids come here, they see the other exhibits. And when they come to the African-American Museum, it's like very questionable. Do they even respect what is there? And I guess, I guess they thought that I was sort of kind of just talking, but I told them I would go get the media and we would come and showcase what was there. And the following morning, they said, um, we have secured a $100,000 grant for the exhibit. Would you work with us on it? Um, and to find out as they were working on it, my mother and father, they were Caribbean, they're from Nassau, Bahamas, but they came there to um, 
to the downtown area and opened their restaurant. Well, as it turns out, my mom and dad was the first black and probably about the second or third blacks to own a business in downtown Orlando. That was back in 72. As it turns out, um, they were the first black to own a restaurant. Wow. So they were included in the exhibit. Amazing. Well, listening to you speak and recall some of the things that you've done in the in your history i can definitely understand why the magic has recently honored you as a social justice game changer in the community can you tell me how that felt to be recognized i know you receive a lot of recognition and your name is thrown out in some of the larger circles but to be honored for something that you're doing passionately and that you honestly believe in how does that feel well, that was phenomenal. Um, I was, it was something that just came out of left field. I didn't know that that was happening. I didn't know that they were watching the work. Um, oftentimes we're so busy doing the work that we never look for the accolades. We're just in the trenches. So when I was contacted by the Orlando Magic and they had all of this information and did the interview, I felt that that was a moment in life that it had reached a benchmark for our work with Onyx. And for others who have really supported us, and I was just very thrilled by it. And my sons, they love the magic. So for them to go and, and be there by the court and see their um, father, godfather, to receive that recognition, I thought that was very important because I believe that we have to take young black and brown males and they have to see us accomplish things versus just see us when they're talking about someone was killed or someone stole something or someone is selling drugs, they need to know that there are positive stories of accomplished people that are worth telling and celebrating. So I was really honored uh, by the Orlando Magic. Definitely will get the attention of some of our youth because sometimes we have to have these type of announcements out there for our younger people to even notice that someone is doing the work that you've been doing. And I did notice also that the Onyx magazine was published in 1997 and known for empowering its readers and that you have the Onyx Women on the Move, Onyx Black Men Honors, Onyx Business Connect, and the Onyx Awards. Do you believe that's why the magazine has survived throughout everything that's happened in, in our past? Well, I, I think we have used the um, template there with um, Ebony Magazine and also with Essence. And one of the things that we discovered is that although they had the magazine, they would sell the ads, but to really reach the masses, they put on events. And one of the things that we discussed with Onyx Magazine as we celebrate the accomplishments and contributions of African-Americans and those of the African diaspora, my background, I was somewhat of a child prodigy in the entertainment world. So I was around production and things of that nature. So I said, well, maybe I can call some of my friends and maybe we can put something together to honor African-Americans here in the state of Florida. And we worked with Neil and Lester Sears and we started the Onyx Award. And then we looked and we said, well, you know, um, actually the Woman on the Move event was not something that I planned to do. It was something that came about because my after my father passed in 2004, we were at the table with my mother and just singing my father praises. And my mom was very quiet, and we were just going on, my siblings and I were just talking about my dad. And my mom says, as you tell the story, let them know that I was the queen 
and a kingmaker. <laughs> add that to the story. Love so it, love it. So oftentimes there are women who do the heavy lifting. They are not celebrated, women of color. And that has been the history. Um, they have raised the children. They've cleaned. They've, they made it possible for others to excel. And oftentimes they are left out of the equation when it comes to celebration and recognition. So it is out of that that the Women on the Move event was created as a result of my mother saying that at a table to say, you all don't give me any credit for being the mother, the person who would um, iron your father's shirt, clean the house, make sure that you all were ready for school, to make sure you've done your homework. That's work. You just don't get paid for it. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely so I understand. Well, I said that would never happen again. <laughs> Thank you for taking on the initiative. And there's something that I have to ask about with the Honest Mac Onyx Magazine's Mask Up Stop the Spread campaign for COVID-19. Do you want to shed any light on that for us? We worked with um, Commissioner Regina Hill, and she really gave that wing. But as we are concerned about the African-American and African diaspora communities, we saw that um, in traveling that there were a lot of folks who were not wearing masks. And we felt like they would become super spreaders in, in our communities. And one day I was at one of the eateries and there was an older guy, I guess he had just gotten off work. He wanted to go inside to sit down to eat his meal, only to discover that he couldn't go inside. And they said, due to COVID, you can't come inside. You just have to pick it up and take it with you. And he says, um, COVID-19 isn't real. Um, Regina Hill ain't say nothing about it. So I called <laughs> Commissioner Hill and I said, Commissioner Hill, I was just out. And the gentleman said, COVID-19 isn't real because you have not said anything about it. Well, she called me back 2 o'clock in the morning. She says, Rich, I can't sleep based upon what you told me. Lives are being lost because we are not sounding the alarm and we are not getting the information out to the people. So as a result of that, I said, well, I think we need to start a campaign and we, it needs to be a mask up campaign. And so she and I, we, we worked together to start the mask, mask Up campaign, which took off. And we were just amazed. We were getting all type of press interviews. And then we noticed that in our community, folks started wearing the mask. We would give the mask out. We would give the sanitizers that we received from the county. And also the, um, the mask, we received 100,000 masks from Bank of America. They were starting an initiative around the country to make sure that vulnerable communities had masks. And they saw our work, so they contacted us and said they would make a donation to our efforts. Wow, you never know the effect that you have on people until something like this happens. And you realize, with like with Miss Regina Hill, she really has a large presence in her community. And I'm glad that you guys were able to collaborate in order to help the community see how important it is to mask up. Thank you for that initiative. And we're going to wrap up this interview, but I have one last question for you. What is your greatest hope and dream for Onyx Magazine? If we are able to make a difference, if we're able to change the narrative, um, if we are able to dispel some of the things that have been said that we know uh, are not true 
of a people, African-Americans, the African diaspora, then we have accomplished what we needed to do. One of the things that we need to push in our community now is not only health um, issues, but we need to talk about black wealth. And my intention, goal, plan, is to make sure that we discuss those things as Ebony did in 1965 and 64, issues that were pertinent for the day that really needed to, um, to be talked about to facilitate change in our community. So if we can be that change agent, we will continue to share those stories and create the narratives that generations um, from today will say, you know what, because they did this, we are able to do this. So that's my initiative to continue to push Continue uh, to push. Yeah. I, I like that. Continue to push. Do you have a, a power word that you would use to describe yourself? <laughs> I don't know if there's a power word, um, but I, I, I am very concerned and very loyal to our communities. So loyalty and integrity are, are two words that stick out. Um, and those are apparent even when people are not present. So those are awesome words. And you can add those to your vocabulary so that if anyone asks you again, loyalty and integrity are your power words. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview with the Edenville Chamber as a part of our small business spotlight. And you have an awesome day. And hopefully we'll be seeing each other soon. And before and before we check off, let me just give you guys kudos. I was driving through Eatonville on yesterday, and wow, man, you guys are doing great work over there. Thank you. We really love hearing that from someone like yourself. You'll have to invite us over to the magazine and let us do our own interview over there, too. And that's a shameless plug there. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. All right, thank All you, right. Barbara Chandler. Just keep up the great work. Thank you very <laughs> much. Have an amazing day. All right, thank you. Thank you. And this is the Eatonville Chamber of Commerce, and you can follow us on our social media channels. We have a Facebook page. Instagram and LinkedIn and we look forward to meeting all of you at some point along the way. Have an amazing day everyone. Thank you. Good morning everyone. My name is Barbara Chandler. This month is February and this is Black History Month. Our seat, our table is so proud to be able to introduce to you African-American communities throughout Central Florida. Today we have joining us Beverly Steele. Beverly Steele is one of the community historians in the community of Royal located in Wildwood, Florida. Good morning, Beverly. Hello, 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 somebody. How are you? It's good to be here. I'm honored to be here, actually. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, Beverly. Thank you so much for joining us. Beverly, one of the platforms of our seat, our table, is to introduce to our community 
other historic African-American communities. So we are so delighted that you are able to join us. And so Beverly, we just want to open up. A lot of people are not aware of the community of Royal. So can you please tell us, inform us of the African-American history of the community of Royal located in Wildwood, Florida? Well, actually, uh, I'm not surprised that many don't know of us. We had a historian consultant that had to justify our oral history because we are uh, embarking on getting a national historic registry listing for the community. So this historian was not surprised that the community still existed. And one of the reasons that he stated for that was because we're not close to a railroad. The railroad never came through it. So if you can remember the story of Rosewood and some of the other places, the railroad came right through those communities or came very close to those communities. So, and they were destroyed because of whatever, whatever it rose was because of some racial tension and so forth and so on. But we're not located close to the railroad. So it does, people, a lot of people are royal. When did it start? Well, according to our oral history, and this historian has pretty much justified it, that it started in 1865, uh, and it was first called Pickettville because of the picket-type fence that the community resident built around their acreage and their property. And their property happens to be, happened to be 40 acres. Wow. So it was to designate that this is my 40, that my 40, that's your 40, that's your 80, this is my 80, so forth and so on. So at the end of the Civil War, um, with General Sherman, the 15, Special Field Order Number 15, where he gave out the 40 acres and one of the army mules was to homestead the land if we wanted, is according to that, we still have the land today. You still have the land today. And I came out to see you maybe about a year ago. You and I, we were kind of touching bases. We had met by phone. Um, and I was able to finally come out and see for myself that many of the residents are still sitting on their land, which is very unusual in a time of not just local gentrification in a lot of African-American communities, but also global gentrification. So that is very interesting to say the least. It, it is, and I feel that one of those reasons because of our elders. We still have a good number of elders in the community, and those elders know the history. Those elders are 80, 90 years old, and they know what it was like when they were children and how their parents worked so hard on the land to, to provide for them and to make a living for their families. And so and they are still around, and a lot of them are still holding on to the land. Wow. So I think that's one of the reasons why, really, uh, because they have that connector there that the younger generation, we may not. That is correct. Bev, let me ask about how big is the population of community of Royal? Well, the thing about Royal is that our population is pretty small. 
because when you have families that have 40 acres, uh, even if it's a family that has nine children, uh, you still have more acreage than you have people. So I could say that uh, to answer that question, I mean, we're fairly small. We don't really know, but we think maybe uh, maybe close to 2,000, if that many, really, that may be pushing it. I usually say about 1,500. Uh, but the thing about it is that we have identified here with the project that we have of preserving this community, we have identified 20 families that still have their 40-acre lots, and we've identified 10 families that have 80-acre lots. Wow. When you come into the community, you may not see a lot of houses, but you see a lot of land. Correct. The land that you're looking at is, uh, and that's how we are actually going after the national registry listing. We're going after it not based on a house that's still standing in the community or a farm barn or something that's still standing. No, because we really don't have a lot of that, but we're going on the fact that the land has been in the hands of the people for that length of time. Wow. Now, the community of Royal, what county is that located? Is that Lake County? No, we're in Sumter County, not Sumter, not S-U-M-P, but S-U-M, Sumter County. And actually, uh, we only have a Wildwood address because our post office that we did have uh, back 1891 was when we had a post office in the community. Of course, they closed it when they set one in Wildwood in another city that's close to us, Oxford. Uh, but we are actually in the county. We're not controlled by the city. We're out of the city limits, actually. The only thing that says Wildwood about us is just our mailing address because that's where our mail goes through that post office. I see. But we are actually governed by the county government, which is, um, you know, uh, how we identify ourselves here in Royal. Okay. So how do you honor the history of Royal. How is that history preserved? I've been to your location before, so I want the viewers to get an idea, uh, a visual of what and how you preserve it. What does that look like? Well, I can tell you the first thing that I would like for everyone to understand is that, you know, a lot of people say, well, I would do that if I had so-and-so. Or I would do this if I had so-and-so. All I can tell them is just use what you have. Mm. Use what you have. What happened is, is I became involved with a community group. Uh, and I, my center is actually the last cafeteria that served our segregated school. So our first school was built in this community in 1874. So we've had a long education history with having our own school in the community. And I think it, I think it went 1969, 1970s when it was mandatory that we that we blend it was how long. So this is the, the cafeteria that I'm sitting in that we had renovated to now it's our enrichment and historical center. And we went to the county to say, hey, can we do something with that building because it was doing pretty good condition. Well, the long and short of it is, is that the county said, after so much discussion, that um, we're either going to tear it down or we'll donate it to the community. 
So, and that's how my organization, I'm the founder of Young Performing Artists Incorporated. Um, that's how my organization got involved because the county said, but we need an organization that has 501c3 status and better than this and better than that uh, in order to donate the building to uh, legally. And here we are. So we are Young Performing Artists Incorporated, an organization that focused on young artists, but we also focus in that area on enrichment. And not just enrichment for our young artists, but enrichment for especially the youth. But we were also doing things for the seniors and so forth here locally, even though we're a statewide focused organization. So I just went to my board and said, hey, look, this is what we have an opportunity to be able to serve this community where we're sitting. And we have a program already running in that community. And we can serve this community by doing this. And we actually changed our mission. We actually added on to our mission to be able to accept this building and to get on the path of helping to preserve the history. So it came about from just getting that center mm -hmm. and getting this historic building, the most significant historic building in this community to everyone. With us getting that, then we said, well, we have a building now, so what do we do with it? I got you. Beverly, when folks come out, because we want everyone to be able to schedule a visit, we realize that we are in COVID times, but we also still want people to know where you are. We want them to be supportive of your organization and the efforts in which you're doing to preserve that wonderful history. What are some of the things, some of the artifacts when you're inside the building that people will see and know about the community? Well, uh, we, we have, we put out the call across the community and said, send us some things. And we got some wonderful things. Uh, like we have an old pool saw. Uh, at one time here in Sumter County, we had a big naval store. And if you don't know about naval stores, it's actually the turpentine industry, it's actually the pine industry. So we have one of the old pool saws from what they used to use to cut down the pine. We have some old tobacco sticks here that we used to use. We grew tobacco in this community. We used to use those sticks to, put the, to wrap and tie the tobacco to them, hang them up in the tobacco barn, and let it dry and then take it to the market. We have some, and after speaking of tobacco, we have one of the old tobacco barns a relic right across the street from my center that I usually show to people when they come in. So we have a lot of things that that's pertaining to Royal and its history, okay? But we also have some things, some interesting things that pertain to national African American history as well, you know? So I'd love for people to reach out to us uh, yes, you are right. We are doing in the pandemic time, but we are working on getting our tours where we can do them virtually. And we're thinking in the next two months, we'll be ready to do that and roll that out. So if people just reach out to us at youngartists at AOL.com, artists is always plural with us, so that's youngartists at AOL.com. Go on our website at youngperformingartists.org. And look us up. Go to Facebook, Young Performing Artists Incorporated is our page. And Twitter, Young Perform Art. So if there are ways that people can find us and we 
we really appreciate them doing that. And we will get in touch with them. Excellent. Excellent, Beverly. I cannot tell you. I know I was definitely amazed to see that African-Americans, uh, Black people that look like me, were still landowners in that community. Um, I know that you're close to the villages, so I, I guess I was under the assumption that that was part of Lake County, but it, it certainly makes sense. Anything else that you would like to share with our listeners at this time? Well, I don't like to um, toot my own horn, but I'm not really tooting my own horn. I think you should toot on, toot on. <laughs> book again, Hello Somebody by Beverly Steele. I cannot thank you. Uh, to our community, you heard it here. Beverly Steele with Community of Royal, where they are still sitting on their 40 acres of land. In some cases, some residents have 80 acres of land. Please check out the site. Address again? Youngperformingartist.org. Youngperformingartist.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Beverly. You have a fantastic, fantastic Black History Month. I know that you have a lot going on for the community, and we continue to thank you for all your efforts, all the efforts that you and all uh, the rest of your team that you're doing to preserve the history of the community of Royal. And I want to thank you for having me on, and I want to thank you as well because we're in this game together. Yes. What you're doing in the Winter Park area and uh, just keep pushing forward. That's what we have to do. We just have to keep pushing forward. We just have to keep keep our eye on the prize. Yes. We've always said, so I want to thank you because it's motivating. It's motivating to me to know that you are out there doing it 
like I'm out here doing this. It's really motivating because we don't find many that doing this. Mm. So it really is a, a good pat on the back. It's a good push in the wind forward. So thank you as well. Thank you, Beverly. And we will be talking to you soon. This is our seat. Our table, the Leadership Lounge. You are listening to WPRK 91.5. Next up in the hour, we have the Artist Spotlight with Andrew Brown. Andrew Brown will be interviewing and introducing us to Jason Radcliffe, who is the illustrator of an African-American coloring book in fashion history. And Andrew is here to tell you so much more about that. Hello, everyone. Good Friday morning. This is our seat, our table, the Leadership Lounge. I have in studio with me a great artist of our time. As Barbara mentioned, he is the artist and illustrator for African Americans in Fashion History, 40 Icons That Helped Shape the Industry. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Jason, let me, I always start out with this question. How did you get started as an artist? Uh, wow. I have been drawing, honestly, since I was five years old. So since I could honestly remember, I have always been putting pencil, crayon, uh, pen to paper. So I really, it's, it's all I know. Wonderful. How did the coloring book come about? The coloring book came about, um, really, I have an education program. Um, of course, you know, that uh, I do with my partner. And we were seeing that there was a huge disconnect okay. in learning about African-Americans who have made huge contributions to the fashion industry. So in my education program, I teach about uh, fashion and designing. And so you always hear about Coco Chanel, Karl Lagerfeld, Yves Saint Laurent. So what happened was, I realized they're not learning about the Ann Lowe's. They're not learning about the Thomas Jennings, um, who Ann Lowe created the wedding gown, which is the prized wedding gown uh, in terms of the wedding industry and fashion. But Ann Lowe created Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress. Uh, Thomas Jennings was the inventor of dry cleaning. Mm. So when we really think about it, there are African-Americans who have made contributions that are lasting. We use dry cleaning every single day. That contribution, we can thank an African-American gentleman. He was also one of the first to receive a patent mm -hmm. um, in the United States. So again, a very huge deal that we don't always learn about and not, is not in the forefront of history. Now, how did you choose the, the uh, fashion icons in the coloring book? What was that process like? Oh, my gosh, the process. I, I will tell you, it was almost like an overflow. If you can imagine a glass kind of being filled up to the rim, hmm. there were so many people when we started to research and dig. We went all the way back to the 1700s, you know, starting with Thomas Jennings when he was born okay. and worked it all the way to 2019 and still begin to find new people that are still making waves and making history. Uh, we can look right now, look at Bruce E. Carter, who's the costume designer for Black Panther, uh -huh. who has been working in the industry for years, just received an Academy Award for costume design for that film. And so the list kind of keeps going and, and narrowing it down to 40 was hard. 
It was extremely hard because I told Barbara, it was almost like the ancestors start speaking to you. Mm. Names start calling out to you. You dig for the research and more pop up. And there's fashion illustrators and fashion stylists and photographers and journalists and designers and masters of this skill and art that we love, that we open up a magazine and love, Mm -hmm. but really understanding that there has been a huge contribution um, from the African-American community and people of color. What's one icon that's featured in the book that no one or virtually no one has heard of prior to this feature? You know, it's hard. You'd be surprised who people have heard of and who people haven't. so really, I, I, I don't want to say who we do, who we know and who we don't know and make that assumption. But what I will say is visit our website, formtofashion.com, or you can also find it at thepaperbarcode.com and check it out. Get it for yourself. If you know them, share them. If you love them, share them. If you don't, learn them. They should be household names like Balenciaga, Christian Dior, Gabrielle Coco Chanel. These are the people that we should be understanding and digging into and thanking them for their contributions. Now, I did get access to a coloring book. Uh, I went to the Hannibal Square Heritage Center and they have a book on archive that you can look through. And there was one in there. I know you're an artist, an illustrator. There was an illustrator in there that I found interesting, Glenn Turns Tunstall. Mm-hmm. Tunstall, uh huh. Um, and he got his start doing fashion illustrations. Correct, correct. Glenn, he's amazing. Uh, there was actually a feature of him in, I believe, Harper's Bazaar uh, recently just talking about his his span and, and the growth of his career from starting. Uh, he's a huge inspiration for me as an illustrator. I also have a, a additional business, the paper bar company, where I create fashion illustration. Uh-huh. So my life is kind of in that fashion industry, in that vein, and happy to represent him within the coloring book. Talk about for other artists, how big is support? in the industry for you as an artist or for an artist in general? Supports you. Partner within these ventures Mm -hmm. that it really is everything. Having your community support you, having your colleagues support you, fellow influencers in fashion. We've been so fortunate when we launched this book to have, you know, notables um, from Cosmopolitan and now in Vogue and notable designers purchase and support. So it's been huge, mm-hmm. huge, huge, huge um, to receive that support from people and colleagues in the community. So now with, with that support of the community, where would you like to see the coloring book go? I want to see it in every school in America. Ah. Uh, I want people to know these names. They deserve to be household names. They deserve to be a part of art curriculum. I want to see it being taught in museums. I want to see it being taught in history centers because it's such a wealth of knowledge Mm -hmm. that children everywhere, not just African-American children, but children across the country, across the globe should know and speak these names.
And last, right before we let you go, where can we find the coloring book? I know you mentioned where it was available, but give us your Instagram, give us your website where people can go and support and purchase the coloring book and learn more about what it is that you do as an artist. Absolutely. As an artist, you can follow me at the paper bar company on Instagram. That's at the paper bar company on Instagram. Our website is the same thing at the paperbarcompany.com. Also, you can visit and learn more about our education program, Form 2 Fashion, and you can visit us on Instagram, same way, Form 2 Fashion, and our website, formtofashion.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jason, for coming in the studio, talking about Thank you. Thank you. the coloring book. I'm definitely going to get a copy for myself. So if you are interested, again, that was thepaperbarcompany.com or form2fashion.com. Barbara, who do you have coming up next? Oh, wow. Next, we have our call to action. We have joining us Naomi Matos. Rodan, Rondon? Rondon. Excellent. Naomi is an organizer with the Climate Justice Organizer at the Florida Immigrant Coalition. Always, always with our seat, our table, we have a call to action. We believe in civic engagement, community engagement, and we want to find ways in which we can get you more involved. There is always a cause that we must, must be advocating for. So Naomi, what should we be advocating for right now? So basically what we have going on right now is HB1, which is the anti-protesting censorship bill. Um, it, was it was proposed not too long ago as a result of what happened in Washington. However, we know that our communities have cemented our civil liberties and are basically the maintaining and also the accountability of the things that are happening within the system through the streets. Mm -hmm. and the idea of protesting. So with this bill, we have the potential for people basically getting denied bail if they are protesting. You have felonies mm -hmm. if you go protesting, which if you are a felon, then that removes your right to vote. We're still fighting for that in Florida. So you have these domino effects of different uh, circumstances that will happen to you as a result of essentially practicing your First Amendment, which is your freedom of speech. Okay. So we want to make sure that whether it's tweeting, emailing, texting, calling, uh, any type of way that you can communicate with your House of Rep. Uh, officials, your Senate officials, your mayor, whoever you need to target, Correct. that you tell them that you are not for this bill. Because what and better what's the way? Bill name again? HB1. HB1. Yeah. Okay. AKA the anti protesting censorship bill. So we want to make sure that we remind our officials that <laughs> we need our right to voice what our concerns are. Correct. So, um, yeah, hit them up and do your best to really get that voice in there because we don't want to wait till the last part of legislative session, which is from March to April, okay. to let them know that we are not for this. Excellent. And how should we, how should the audience keep up with what you're doing so you can keep us informed? Yeah. So, I mean, we work in coalition. The Florida Immigrant Coalition works in partnership, whether it's through member organizations or allies, um, to communicate with basically the entire community. So whether it's us, through Instagram, through Facebook, through our website, or other members or allies like the Dream Defenders, we are all working in unison to sort of like help combat this. Um, so yeah, 
you know, social media is the way to go, really. Excellent. Hey, we want to thank each and every one of our guests once again for joining us. Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge is a weekly, weekly show from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock, WPRK 91.5, WPRK.org. We are working right now in conjunction with our partnership with uh, WPRK Rollins Radio, in which we can place this on a podcast and we can reach a broader audience. We want to thank our guests for joining us. Again, this weekend, we have a list of activities for you right here in Winter Park. Friday, you have the opening exhibition at the Hannibal Square Heritage Center to begin at 7 o'clock. Over the weekend, you have the 1619 Fest in historic Hannibal Square. For more information, 1619 Fest Orlando, HannibalSquare.eventbrite. My name is Barbara Chandler, and we want to thank you once again for listening to Our Seat, Our Table, Leadership Lounge, and we will see you next Friday.